This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cyber Traps Podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington. I am the host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everybody. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York City. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and the misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. The Cyber Traps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. It's kind of cool to to talk about that. It's becoming real, Fred. It is, in fact, real. So. <laughs> Just waiting for the state of Washington to say yes. Yeah. Come on, Washington. All right. We want to recognize our inaugural mission partner. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybershops podcast, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been digital media since 97 and has overseen 300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and being accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, please reach out to Scott at buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R Media on LinkedIn. Greetings there, Jethro. Hey, good to see you, Fred. Happy Thursday, indeed. 
Indeed it is. And it is a gorgeous day here in Brooklyn and we will <laughs> slowly get stuff put together so we can do this more smoothly. Um, yes. It is uh, with a great deal of pleasure that I introduce our guest today, who is Ben Mycelis. Is that the correct pronunciation? One of the three brothers uh, who is uh, responsible for the founding and operation of Midas Touch, which has become one of the, uh, shall we say, political video forces of the past year. So it's really a great um, pleasure to have you here, Ben, and to talk about the work that you do and some of the things that you've discovered about the online world over the course of the past 18 months, two years, whatever you want to call it. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started, and then we'll launch into some questions. That's great. So it's always kind of funny to me, although becoming increasingly normal, to be associated first and foremost with Midas Touch. <laughs> my because my background was a civil rights lawyer. I've been an attorney for 11 years, um, graduated from Georgetown Law, handled a lot of high profile, excessive force, wrongful death, catastrophic injury cases in California and across the country. There was a time where I did uh, the fire Festival. I'm still doing it, but I was known for doing the fire Festival class action. So I was known as the attorney in the fire festival movies. And then I <laughs> myself as the attorney who represented Colin Kaepernick in his case against the NFL. Um, and so I was known as that. And that was kind of the byline Ben Micellis who represented Colin Kaepernick. And then we started Midas Touch during the quarantine in March of 2020, uh, where me, my two younger brothers, Brett and Jordy, None of us have any meaningful political background. I interned on the Hill when I was in college, um, but I don't think that's really like a political uh, person. Um, but I brought my legal skills to bear. Brett uh, was an Emmy Award winning digital editor. He worked at the Ellen DeGeneres show where he would have to turn around dailies very quickly and edit the shows and splice kind of quick videos together um, and ran their social media. Um, so I'm 34. Five. I paused for a second because I turned 36 soon uh, this month. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> Brett's 30 and our other, our other brother, Jordy, is 27. He's a marketing exec um, in Manhattan. And so we all put our skills together just because what we saw on TV was, in our view, uh, in Donald Trump's press conferences, very antithetical to education, to science, to safety, to security. And each day it got worse while we were in quarantine. And you're sitting at home, you're watching what's happening. And there's only a certain amount for us of like yelling in your small apartment or texting each other how upset you are, you know, before you either just get really depressed or we did something about it. And so we started making a video um, put some ideas together. First video took off. It got a million views. Um, we started doing other videos, a million views. And before we knew it, we were on to something. Have to create a structure. So we Googled, you know, what kind of structures are there out there? We arrived at a political action committee seemed to be the best route because if our intent was to depose Donald Trump, and I use the word depose because we think he was a dictator, it is. You have to be compliant 
um, and you have to disclose. And we wanted to have very transparent disclosures of if we were raising money, where money's coming from, how money's being spent. Um, so we arrived at a political action committee. And now more than a year uh, later, our objectives thus far were accomplished. Biden won. We were heavily invested in Georgia, um, oh, you know, won the Senate seats in Georgia for the Democrats with we, we were a small part in that with all the other great work of all the other groups out there, especially Stacey Abrams. Let's shift gears a little bit, because I think that the political path that you guys have gone down is, is pretty well known. But I'm really curious to have you talk about, I guess, almost the psychological aspects of wading into the, you know, the online discussion, because a fair chunk of our audience consists of parents who may have kids who are using these incredibly powerful tools to do some of the same kinds of things, or at least try to do some of the same kinds of things you do. And I'm curious to hear the extent to which your brothers, you and your brothers have, you know, experienced difficulties because of what you do or warnings you might offer to parents. Um, you know, clearly you guys had some skill in terms of video, but the digital tools that are available allow almost anyone to try to do the same kinds of things you're doing in very different ways. And I think that there are some definite risks associated with, in a sense, establishing a public presence. Any thoughts on that? I mean, and for, for us, the key thing was always being as transparent about who we are as you can practically be. You know, in a given day, you could only do so many posts and if all of your posts are literally about everything you do every second, we try to do as much as possible to let people know when we're doing something. We try to differentiate ourselves from all the other groups that were out there by our transparent approach um, to this. I think that was the main differentiator. And that also started with putting our personalities out there. Um, and there was a great deal of risk when I'm letting people know this is who I am and here are my brothers and here are our political views, whether you agree or disagree with those, um, with those political views. Um, but for us, the conversation was always not a haphazard. It was always well thought out. Um, we're not just posting random stuff or feeling, or, you know, or letting our feelings drive our posts. It all is planned out. And before we post, you know, we always kind of gut check each other, you know, in our chat, which is like, is that post an appropriate post? Can that, you know, can that be construed a certain way? Um, and we generally rely on our instincts. But to your former point about other people, you know, when the parents listening, you really can't control what the entire universe of other trolls do. Like, we get death threats, um, you know, not infrequently. I don't think that that's an experience. And we happen to be in a line of work where doing that sometimes conjures those sentiments, unfortunately. From But I think being transparent, being well thought out um, is the most important thing, you know, when you have an online presence. Yeah, I want to ask specifically about that because the things that you're saying are are certainly going to upset some people. And I think to the point of death threats is absolutely inappropriate. And that bothers me greatly that people threaten people's lives over political views. It makes no sense to me, but 
as you're as you're thinking about what you're posting, what process are you going through with each other to say, is this inappropriate? And what does inappropriate look like to you? Because obviously you have very strong feelings and and hopefully you would never threaten somebody else's life yourself because that would be awkward in this conversation. <laughs> but but what what does that conversation look like about whether or not something's appropriate for you as you and your brothers? Well, so uh, the most important thing being a democratic and progressive organization for us is to make sure that we have a diversity of views that are reflected through our platform because our platform is so big and so large and so influential. One of the benefits of what we do as brothers is we're so close, but one of the downsides to that also is our experiences are often very shared and could oftentimes be, be insular. And what three brothers who grew up, three white brothers who grew up in a middle-class background in Long Island, New York experience is not reflective of a broader population um, and is not reflective of the experiences out there. And so tonally and in relating to what our audience is going through, um, it's important that we're soliciting views of others other than us three. So that was, you know, an important step in our in our growth to make sure that all different groups were represented from LGBTQ plus groups to women's groups to black, brown and other non-white groups, you know, and making sure we were having other voices on that. That was, that was really, really critical. Um, and also making sure that the language that we're using and it would be on a very, very rare occasion. A lot of the stuff is fairly autonomous and that wouldn't require a ton of filtering, but I want to make sure that we're not reflecting any biases that we're unaware of, but that can be viewed as offensive. And we, we're not always a hundred percent. I mean, we once did a video about um, Donald Trump where, because he was mocking Democrats for being weak, we did a video mocking him for weak um, and we got some pushback by the obvious community, you know, you know, or some people saying by calling him weak, you're reinforcing, you're reinforcing certain um, negative views on people who are disabled. And it was frankly, once I posted, it's posted, um, but I can take note of that and maybe I don't as prominently feature that video in the future or I try to then have a discussion with the person who has a concern or a complaint about, look, the reason I'm doing it here is I wouldn't do that to any other person. I'm doing it to someone who is mocking disabled people. And so we're trying to highlight the hypocrisy of what, uh, of what that individual is doing. But, you know, and look, for your, for your listeners, there are some people who just want to pick a fight with us though, you know, that who, no matter what I say, what they want to do is turn their little Twitter army against, you know, me. And that's their mission. That's what they want to do. And at that point, I just don't look at it. I'll either block, although I don't like blocking because sometimes I find when you block the person, they just find other ways to rally people and it shows a sensitivity um, to it versus just ignoring it. And so I, I, I just ignore it and I advise people 
other platforms who come to me for advice, I just said, don't read, just don't read all the comments that you get. Like you, you, it'll drive you crazy if you do. I think actually, Ben, you're raising a really important point because one of the topics that we discuss fairly often um, is obviously cyberbullying and cyber harassment. And it's a real challenge, I think, for younger kids who are in middle school and high school to develop the kinds of defenses that you're talking about. I mean, you have an advantage in being in your mid-30s. You've got, you know, obviously your, your support group in terms of your brothers and the, uh, the public feedback that you've gotten. Um, but I, I think that one of the things that this kind of public presence creates is a risk for kids, you know, in terms of that kind of feedback. I, I agree. And, you know, I, I, should, I should confess from the outset, whether it matters or doesn't matter, that I have a bunch of nieces and nephews, but I don't personally have children. And so I don't know, honestly, from a parental perspective, I know what I do with my nieces and nephews. I don't know if that would be different with, with my own children, but I, I am surprised very frequently just at what they consume and it being very like video game driven. And they were here this weekend and they were watching people playing the video game, um, playing a WWE video game and just laughing like this was the funniest movie they've ever seen. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, what, what in the world is going on? And I try to encourage in those situations though, like a, a, a teenager, I think, you know, someone under the age of 14, 15 should not be engaged, I think, in any of the types of discussions that I'm out there having. I just, I just don't think that should take place. But I think that we've lost it as a country, generally as we've progressed in this digital age where Kids aren't reading books like they used to. They're not get, They're not reading newspapers, and they're not appropriately using their, you know, their online time. And so, I just think that that needs to just generally be encouraged more because if they're on there in certain platforms, they're just not going to be able to avoid it, and the cyberbullying is just going to be, you know, it's just going to be real. Well, I appreciate that that comment, Ben, because what you're recognizing is that there is an audience for what you're doing and the conversations that you're having. And that that's not appropriate for kids that are younger than 14 or 15, as you said. And I think that part of the challenge is that a lot of kids are on these platforms where the conversations are happening and they're being exposed to the conversations and not really having the tools to know how to handle that. And I think that is a really important piece for us to pay attention to because, you know, I I don't think that it means that we should not have the conversations because kids might overhear but I think that that goes to in parents working to ensure that they're having appropriate level conversations with their kids about similar issues. And I, you know, the quarantine, for example, affected everybody and in very different ways. And so we need to be able to talk about the pandemic and the reaction to it with our kids and help them understand, you know, what our family philosophies and values are around how it was handled and what people did and all that kind of stuff. But that doesn't mean that we should take it to the level that you necessarily are with the video content that you produce and the other conversations. So I appreciate you you saying that, that there's a delineation that young kids are not your target audience, right? And I, I think that you know that, but 
other people may not may not understand that. And I, I think that that's good. I want to talk a little bit about the the conversations, you know, on Twitter and things like that and how people will respond and how it's, you know, easy for you to, to say, I'm not going to read it. A lot of people are not able to do that. And part of the reason why it's easy probably for you is that you probably get so many comments that you can't possibly read them all anyway. So what would be your advice to someone who is only getting a few comments and lots of those are negative how would you uh, suggest that, that they deal with that when they don't have nearly the uh, influx that you do? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the people on the other end, if somebody is taking the time to either direct message you something nasty or put a nasty comment about you personally, that's not a fair criticism. That's just a a, a blatant kind of bullying move. There's some deeper, larger psychological issues that 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 person is going through that makes them actually want to type that to you because it's not a normal human reaction to, to, to do that. And so I think in having the explanations, like if we were in a physical space and you're walking in a metropolitan area and there was a psychologically disturbed um, naked person running around the streets shouting crazy things and they start shouting at you and saying, you know, you're this, you're that, you'd be like, all right, that's a crazy person. In many ways, as we go in the digital space, you almost have to treat those trolls kind of like that. And, and the conversation has to be there when you have that digital birds and birds and the bees kind of discussion with children or people, (laughs) these people are just sickly disturbed individuals and humans who are suffering and like just have compassion for them because they're going through something that's deep and sad in their lives and just ignore it. Cause I really genuinely think that's the truth of what they're going for. No, that's, that's, that's a brilliant description, Ben. I mean, of course in New York, we call that a Tuesday to have those kinds of confrontations, but I love your use of the phrase digital birds and the bees, because one of the things we talk about with some frequency is at what age is it appropriate for various kids to get online on different platforms and that's you know obviously very fact specific but before kids are given devices or before they're exposed to content on these different platforms you do need to prepare them and give them the context to understand what they're going to see absolutely and you know i think back to my own childhood i mean look i think in um You know, I think in fifth or sixth grade, um, you know, although parents don't want to believe that their children are seeing uh, difficult, you know, strange. I know where this is going. (laughs) I think I believe that right after elementary school, that's taking place and you could pretend it isn't. I mean, the fourth, the fifth and sixth grader may not even fully appreciate what it is they're doing or why they're doing it, but they're being drawn to something. And in a digital world, it's being delivered in a much easier you know, way to them. But I would think that those conversations, 
you know, truly would need to happen in that kind of, you know, right around then, you know, right around, you know, the fourth and fifth grade kind of time period. And potentially, you know, potentially earlier, you know, I mean, I think some of those conversations the same way in elementary school, you know, at least growing up, we would learn about, you know, never taking candy from a stranger and those types of physical kind of conversations and having safe words with families and and things like that, whether you actually did them or not, those were conversations that, that took place. So I think there's preliminary conversations in elementary school that are like that. And then I think it's an ongoing process that that really shouldn't be ignored, though, because one of the things I also observe in the youth, though, is sometimes if you don't if you don't really address it and just let it go on and on and on, that digital space can really take over um, and be so addictive and all encompassing that the kids are living in virtual you know, in virtual worlds and not even in the real world anymore. Well, I think that's both a good observation and a really interesting segue to one of your new projects, which is Midas University, because really, as I understand it, a goal is to teach kids, older kids, right? High school and college, mostly college, how to produce and distribute some of the content or similar content to what uh, you and your brothers are producing. Um, so I'm curious to hear what led you to start that and, and where you hope it goes. Yeah, as we expand our organization, my goal is to encourage people at ages where I can still maybe have an impact versus waiting until somebody's in their mid-20s, 30s, or 40s and try to change decades of indoctrination. When I used to go and do lots of speaking at schools, when I would speak about being a lawyer to middle school students, it was a different and actually a more rewarding conversation than even when I would speak to high school students. High school students, they were almost too cool for school, and they already had these bizarre visions of what their future was, which was never going to meet reality and sometimes were resistant or just wanted to show off to the, you know, their, their counterparts that, you know, that they were cool. But when you would open the eyes of a middle schooler to the very possibility that they could become a successful lawyer and they had no lawyer in their family or no professional in their family or no one who had done a job other than maybe you know, a a service job like working at a McDonald's or a Burger King, which is great, but that they hadn't even thought through the vision that there could be more. (laughs) That they were like, oh my gosh, you know, we could could do these things. And so what I hope to do and encourage is at a political level, I think at that college and high school level for politics, kids are still looking for a path um, that may be different than what their parents had told them or maybe consistent with what their parents had told them. But I at least want to open their eyes up to certain political views and encourage their involvement and participation uh, in the process at a young age. So that's why we started Midas University and have created a chapter called Varsity Blues, which is our high school program. And then we have about 22 chapters in college campuses across the country now that are led by, um, that are led by college students there. 
I love how you phrased it as participation and not as something else. And there are a lot of other words you could use to describe it, but for the sake of our country, we need participation more than anything is my opinion. And so I appreciate that that's the approach that you're taking. How do you teach them and handle issues such as cyber ethics and copyright and sourcing material and being honest in your portrayal and not being one-sided or, or things like that? How do you how do you help teach them those kinds of things? I think we lead by example when it comes to the issues of kind of copyright um, on the issues of kind of full compliance and transparency. They literally can see what we're doing. We're all in a group message where we're in constant communication on a daily basis. Um, so they want, they're watching what we're doing, which is the best way for anybody to learn. If you want to be a good lawyer, the best way you learn is by being around a great lawyer and seeing how they do it. Like it's more significant than any formal education um, by far. So leading by example is beyond invaluable. And then we, you know, we provide guided instruction and advice to them, you know, every step of the way. If they have a question for us, we answer. But, you know, ultimately it's about, I think when you empower and you trust the youth, but you provide broad kind of guidelines um, for that age group. I think it's different as you get into maybe elementary and middle school where you need to be a little more instructive. But at that college age, if you're overly micromanaging, you are giving them throwbacks to experiences that they are trying to get away from in college. And so the goal is to give them broad outlines and empower them. And traditionally, political groups, frankly, traditionally all industries, other than like tech. Tech, you have the idea of the young entrepreneur, but almost everywhere else, political activism, law, medicine, you have a hierarchy of kind of older professionals and, you know, who say this is how it's the way it's always been done. And in politics, that's the case totally. And uh, we empower them to make videos. We amplify the videos that work. If they make a bad video, we tell them it's a bad video. If it's a good video, we tell them it's a great video. Um, we have them go live. Sometimes we'll monitor. They'll see us monitoring the live. We'll show up um, and we'll join it with them so they know that there's a presence there. And uh, but we But we empower them. I think that's... And, and then we're always here as a resource. And I'll always take their questions. Like, I've had many times where one of the students, leaders of a chapter has texted me, hey, you know, can you give me a, I have a question about this? What do you think about this? And I'll always be there as a resource to answer their, to answer their question. Well, Ben, actually, this brings us full circle in a way, because you've got this entity, you've got this program now designed to help kids improve their video skills, improve the creation and distribution of their voice. But it seems to me that a piece of what you guys are doing is hopefully helping them to understand the landscape in which they're operating in terms of potential threats, uh, potential responses that may be difficult. Um, it seems to me that in addition to the ethical considerations that Jethro raised, there's also the psychological piece. And you're not, obviously, you're not serving as their parents, but a little bit, you're in loco parentis, right, for these kids who are now kind of venturing out in a new way. And so I think it's useful for parents to 
maybe even begin that preparation process earlier, you know, in terms of helping kids to understand what is and is not okay and what they can expect when they're in these online environments. Yeah, and there's a lot of disinfo out there. And part of our movement was always fighting disinfo and in our view, supporting democracy. And to me, that isn't a political or partisan view to be pro-democracy and to be pro-accurate information. And our mission, and I always said, sure, my political views were this, but I promise you that if my the party that I support starts doing significant disinfo and starts not supporting democracy, I'm going, I'm going in another direction. And so what the battle's also about and what the education's about is really combating disinfo and empowering the youth to have these conversations to to really, you know, to really root it out. And I just think fundamentally there is an attack and assault that was a going and is going on our education, on our science, on facts. And that to me is ultimately what drew me down this path because it's hard to, I couldn't sit back and be silent in that path. And in the 2016 election, there was an overwhelming presence of disinfo. And I didn't see at any point in time at all, any concerted effort to really fight back against it. It just went out there and, and all the info was coming from one side. And so it was just like, let's get in there. Let's have this conversation. Let's what we believe the truth is and be transparent as we can be about it. Well, Ben, I'm a little bit older than you, almost uh, two decades or a little bit more than two decades. And so- Just a smidge older. Just a smidge. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to call that a sous-son. But the thing is that I watched the other day Aaron Sorkin's latest kind of walk and talkie, the trial of the Chicago 7. And if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. Um, But it's called to mind because I think that 50 odd years ago, God, is that, no, it's actually closer to 60, Um, that we are, you know, that that was the last kind of major concerted youth political activism period. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on whether you see that potential now or if if you think it's actually happening. I, um, I, you know, the the numbers don't bear out that it's fully happening. I, I don't think. I think that even in the most recent election, I think youth turnout was good, but still somewhat disappointing. But I think with harness the appropriate way, Gen Z, whatever we're calling all the other gens now that are younger than me. Can't keep track. <laughs> can't keep track. There's actually a great deal of potential and a great deal of reward. Although there's a lot of bad that exists that exists too. And I just think where we want to get into the fight is just to be a small part. We know that Midas isn't going to be, I don't think that Midas alone is going to fix everything and create this. I'd love for it to do it, but it's going to require 
other groups, other people, other people to look at the example, hopefully that they see in us and go, well, we could do something too. But the hope ultimately is, is that we push back against the disinfo and start having the youth harness their digital powers in positive ways that are, that are age appropriate. And some of that also is in our videos, you know, speaking to, to parents and speaking to family members. You know, we did a podcast uh, with a cult deprogrammer. Her name was Diane Benskitter um, and went through about an hour long lesson about identifying the signs of cult behavior, cult deprogramming, how you could reach out to family members, um, how you provide a gentle landing, what prevents cult members from sometimes seeing the truth. And so, you know, we just hope little things like that can also break through and start having family discussions of like, how do we be good? Like, it, it's not okay. Part of my, and you know, and, and, and I'm not getting political. It's funny because all my podcasts are usually political. So I came out very hot in this podcast, like, all right, let me tell you how I think about Trump. But that's just because that's my traditional interview. But at the end of the day, what, what angered me, what frustrated me about the man ultimately was what that was doing to kids what the anger and what the venom and if you're seeing the leader act act like that of, of a country, act like a immature bully, act like the exact example that we've always looked to in my view to say, that's just not, that's not a good person. And then to justify that, justify it morally, justify it from a religious perspective, justify it wherever at the end of the day, whatever your reason was, like to me, that just wasn't cool. You know, and it was like, I'm not okay with that's. I want someone who's good, you know, who who's in a loving relationship with their family, who cares about others, who gives people hugs, you know, who 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 genuinely loves and cares and is compassionate. Like that's at its core. Maybe we just need to talk to people like people. And I think that's sometimes the problem here is that we're talking to people like robots, and it's let's just love each other and not have hateful, let's not support hateful people who are lying to us. They're talking to each other like robots, I think really is one of the core themes of the show in a sense, the extent to which technology has alienated us from ourselves, from each other, um, you know, from the real world, however you want to put it. You know, the reason I was intrigued to get your thoughts on, on sort of the generational differences is that when you look back, you know, at the late 1960s, the activists who were protesting the war were ultimately dependent on newspapers and television shows to get their message out. And that, that I, I would argue, encouraged increasingly outrageous behavior just to get their attention. But now, as you point out, the technological tools in the hands of every single kid are so incredibly powerful. So it does seem to me that a significant role that the Midas University would play is helping kids to channel that power in effective, socially uplifting ways. And I think to handle it responsibly, because now that everybody has this power, it's how do you one up the next person for views or for likes? 
So then you see right. people who are doing very dangerous activities or saying the most outrageous things possible, because if you just say something slightly outrageous, you're not going to get as much likes as if you just go full-fledged, you know, lunatic, crazy things, and you say that. And so part of the responsibility, I think, that comes with our platform, though, and, and in our Midas University program, is to show that you can build the type of platform that we did, but also build it responsibly. And we can push, we can push the limits, um, but the limits are still a limit of basic human decency and dignity and not going outside and not lying and not unnecessarily cursing and not unnecessarily going into, you know, going into the obscene. Well, it does then, I think, present the great opportunity to ask if you and your brothers ever got sucked into that. Did you ever find yourself saying, oh, this only got 700,000 likes, you know, what do we do next time to boost it up? Well, I think we always want to look at what's performing and not performing and how do you, should we do it longer? Do we do it shorter? Uh, should it have a narrative or should it just have the clips that are together? You know, and there are some videos that, that work and some videos that, uh, you know, that, 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 that don't work. But I think in that race, the goal was never to, never to do anything that would, you know, just be absurd or just be a lie or, or there was nothing ever that was intended to be, you know, just unnecessarily, you know, just click baby for the sake of, for the sake of clicks. But of course, we'll look at videos and adapt to say, how do we make this better or that better and get, and get more views? The goal is to influence people. And so I want to get more followers. I want to have our view, videos viewed more. We've had over a billion views since Midas started. Wow. Um, a, a year ago and and Jesus, you know that's amazing <laughs> yeah so i think that 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 piece is really important to constantly think about and to talk about especially with the youth in minus university and varsity blues because that the the push for clicks the push for likes the push for views it really does have a a negative side to it that it, it's great that you've had that success and there are people who are doing something similar that have never come close to anything that you're that you're talking about. And it doesn't mean that that person's efforts are worthless or are um, they're they're taking action. And what you're trying to do is influence people, and that's that's great. But it, it, there is a dark side to that, especially if you're not getting those results that you're seeking. And so I appreciate that your focus is on having a message, being truthful, being honest, and, and focusing on those things. I, I think as a, a final question that, that I'm curious about is you mentioned that if, if your party is starting to do those same things, then you'll go someplace else. There's the old adage that if a politician's lips are moving, his, he's lying. <laughs> so we're going to have you know people making bad choices as politicians, no matter what. How do you make that determination yourself about what is okay for your party to do, but not okay for the other party to do? Or how do you, how do you make that judgment call? I mean, for me, it's easy. I, I draw the line about whether you support or don't support democracy at, at this stage. When I see people 
like yesterday, um, not sure when this is going to air, but on May, you know, on, on the week of May uh, 9th, uh, May 10th, um, talking about there was no insurrection that took place. It was a normal day at the Capitol building and uh, no police officers were attacked. That's not being political at that point. I mean, to me, that's just kind of outright lying and kind of outright supporting something other than democracy. Um, you know, for me, when after you go through a democratic election process and one group of people want to cast doubt on the legitimacy of a democratic election, to me, that's a tool ultimately of, of authoritarians and, and, and despots and other countries that I would never think America would ever, would ever do. And so that dynamic to me is why I got in, you know, why I got in the ring when I got in the ring. I didn't get in the ring when people were fighting over the nuances of, of, of healthcare. You know, frankly, I didn't think I would be a great, I took a health court, I took a, uh, healthcare course in law school, but I don't think that made me a good arbiter of the policy and, and whether the Democratic versus the Republican plan was better, was better or worse. And I can give you a myriad of examples, but where I do think I can lend help is in my humanity and to jump in when I jump in and simply say, hey, there was an insurrection. Hey, you're not listening to the facts here, like you're not following democracy, like what you're saying is absurd and offensive to the very notion of our constitution. You know, you are supporting attacks on police officers. I'm watching with my own eyes what I see at the Capitol building. And so that's where I draw the line. And, and, and there may be a day where we're back to talking about uh, deficits and debt and and uh, and healthcare policies and you know it's not going to be there may not be a Midas touch then which would which could be great at the end of the day like <laughs> I don't think there would be a great video that goes into the estate tax um, you know I don't think I could do a great video on that um, but as long as one party's not supporting fundamentally democracy it's that's right. Well, Ben, thank you very, very much for your time today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, I certainly wish you the best as you and your brothers go forward and look forward to seeing how Varsity Blues and Midas University play out. It'll be an interesting thing to keep an eye on. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We'd love for you to reach out with questions or feedback or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this episode like we did. So please leave us a five-star rating and review and subscribe in your podcast player of choice. We'll see you on Monday for our live show. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? 
you need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.